Hi, welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren, and we are here bringing you the podcast for preachers who want to preach from the Old Testament, but don't want to look like Balaam's ass when they do it. Ah! <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> the first reading this week is 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 15, the infamous account of David's taking of Bathsheba and conspiracy against her husband, Uriah. This week's text is uh, a minefield in a lot of ways. And when Tim and I sat down to read it, we were wondering who might have some special expertise to help walk us through that. And the first person who came to mind was uh, Carolee Folk. How do you pronounce your last name? Folk, it rhymes with Coke. (laughs) (laughs) Carolee Folk is one of our senior colleagues. I am a doctoral candidate at Emory University um, in Hebrew Bible. I focus on the Bible and trauma, and I also do a lot of work with the Bible and gender theory, particularly queer theory. So if you know a little bit about the biblical scholarly world, you know that that's kind of a hot topic right now. And if you didn't know that, now you do. I am originally from South Central Pennsylvania, a little town that doesn't actually exist called Edders. (laughs) Wait, wait, a little town that doesn't exist? It's a post office box. Tell us about uh, what your religious background is. Sure. I grew up Roman Catholic and continue to identify as that. Uh, I've also done a lot of work with and spent a lot of time in United Methodist churches. So Carolee has a forthcoming publication along with uh, Richard Purcell. It's called Competing Masculinities, Yahweh versus Pharaoh in an Integrative Ideological Reading of Exodus 1 through 14. And in addition to all that, Carolee is super smart and uh, all around wonderful person. So it's, it's really great to have you with us, Carolee. Thanks for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I kind of leaned heavily on the preaching angle this time around because I was really taken with this idea of Bathsheba's story. Um, her whole story is this really interesting tension between kind of the the deepest powerlessness and namelessness you can have and then also some of the strongest agency of any women in the Bible procuring the throne for her son and being named in Jesus's lineage. Um, So I think one of the things that I wanted to do in our podcast would be to just lift that up, the context of her story, um, to ask uh, Carolee, who has worked with um, victims of trauma, if preachers want to mention, you know, sexual assault from the pulpit, like, what's the best way to do that? What are some really major pitfalls? Like, you know, what should they do in preparation? Um, You know, because I think it's important to be naming this stuff, but I think there's a lot of really bad ways you could accidentally do it. This is a hard question. (laughs) I don't think that there's any particularly right answer to this, but there are a lot of wrong answers. Um, I think that it's really important to talk about it, and I think it's important to talk about it well. Mm-hmm. And that a lot of times means if you can't draw from personal experience talking with people who have experienced traumatic events in order to have a faithful voice in a way that's not speaking over and that's not harmful to these people. So with the Me Too movement, there's kind of nothing in the text that indicates consent or rape, which is kind of one of the problems because it doesn't say one way or the other. But there is a very vast power differential here. Um, So we have the king versus the woman and the wife of a warrior, which kind of compares to like director versus a no-name actress Mm. 
or president versus a low-level staffer. Women who maybe have a choice, but don't actually have a choice. Mm. Consent in this case would mean that both people have the ability to freely say no without the threat of harm, like career or physical. Mm. And I don't think that we see that in the text, and I don't think that we see that in society a lot of the time either. Mm -hmm. And we don't like thinking about David this way. The rabbis of the Talmud didn't like it either, and they did like backflips to say that David was actually innocent. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that they say is that the uh, the warriors wrote writs of divorce for their wives in case they died in battle. So technically, Bathsheba was divorced from Uriah, and therefore David was okay to take her as like a wife. And we see preachers do the same thing today, where they blame Bathsheba for enticing him, mm-hmm. which is one of the first things that I remember about this text mm-hmm. in high school, sitting in youth group, saying, "Well." Bathsheba shouldn't have been bathing on the roof. Mm-hmm. But we have no historical evidence about where people bathed or anything about ba- bathing. <laughs> so we that... do know that they lived on roofs. And... Okay, so this was one of my questions. Like, did people bathe on roofs? And we just we just have no idea. We have no idea. Okay. Well, and I mean, so barring any historical evidence, there's nothing in the text to, to suggest that she was doing anything wrong or unusual. And And... Uh, if anything, the text says that what she was doing was highly appropriate because uh, the bathing was a, a, a religious purification ritual. Mm-hmm. So she was being faithful to the religious uh, culture of her people. Mm-hmm. Right. And so bringing all of this back to the Me Too movement, like how often do we see uh, people defending the men mm-hmm. who are accused of raping people or sexually assaulting people mm-hmm. or women specifically mm-hmm. um, with these same kinds of arguments? And we're drawing from that in the text, too. So especially in light of the Me Too movement. I think reading this text at its best is that there's a coerced yes. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a good time to talk about, too, in um, some denominations, kind of piggybacking on the Me Too movement has been the Church Too movement, which is to lift up how sexual assault and abuse is prevalent within his churches, um, that they are an institution Uh, that is rife with it. So however much we love the church and however much we have devoted our lives to the church, this problem is not someone else's problem. This is our problem. And it is in our backyard and in our homes. So talking about it in churches is as crucial, if not more crucial, than any other place in society right now. Yeah, I mean, if you're preaching a sermon on this text in a church, there will be people in your church who have experienced abuse. Yes. There are guaranteed both Bathsheba's and David's in your congregations. Oh, that's a great way to say it. That's a great way to say it. I think there it wouldn't be a terrible time to mention the male gaze either. Mm. So one of the things that I was asked to talk about a little bit was gender theory. And for this text, I think male gaze is the best way to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a term coined probably in 1975 by Lauren Mulvey in an essay called Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. We think, maybe. It's one of those things where it's really hard to find the beginning of a word. Um, And it's the way that men are conditioned to look at women as objects, and often sexual objects, in patriarchal cultures. Mm -hmm. So one thing with the male gaze is to understand that it's a cultural thing, not a biological one. David kind of epitomizes this male gaze in this instance. And Bathsheba is something to possess and act upon, and she doesn't really get a say in the matter. You, you mentioned um, talking with someone who has had the experience of sexual assault so that it's their voice being represented and not your own, mm-hmm. um, so that you're not talking over them. Do you have other suggestions about good or bad ways to do this? I have some more of those. Perfect. That's okay. Go for it. Okay, so one of the other things that's really big in the, in the conversation about trauma, both in like ac- the academy as well as real-life circles, 
is um, whether or not you should use the term survivor or victim. Um, So many people like the term survivor because it gives agency to the person affected by the traumatic event. But a lot of times I hear the word survivor used as a way to get someone to stop talking about their experiences. Mm -hmm. It's a way to say to someone who's like lived through this traumatic event, all right, we get it, something bad happened, it's over, you survived, it's time to move on. Mm -hmm. Um, So my point isn't to take away the term survivor from people like who have claimed it for themselves, but rather to make sure that people aren't placing that word upon others. Um, And this is something that I've talked about with people who have been sexually assaulted, so it's Mm -hmm. not just me saying this. Do you have a suggestion for if someone's preaching about it, which one to go with, to use both? I usually go with the wordy people who have experienced sexual assault, people who have experienced a traumatic event. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also interesting in Bathsheba's story of whether or not she's a survivor or a victim because she's maybe a little bit of both Mm. um, because she doesn't really have agency in this particular story in 2 Samuel 11. She only speaks two words and everything just happens to her. Yeah. And she survives, kind of. But to call her a survivor at this point is kind of to minimize everything that she's forced to live through. Yeah. Um, so years later then in first Kings one to two, she fights for her son Solomon to the, to be the heir to the throne. Yeah. Yeah. So here she has agency and a voice. Mm. Um, so she's learned to survive essentially. Mm. And it doesn't mean that she's gotten over what's happened. Um, we don't know because we're never told, but no one really, you know, gets over something. Um, but she's learned to live kind of in spite of it. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. Um, what's your what's your initial um, sense of where a sermon like that might go? Well, I think that's my the sermon that I would preach would be um, probably titled "Giving Bathsheba Back Her Voice." I I read the Bible differently now um, than I did before the Me Too movement, and when I read this text, I could not stop thinking about Bathsheba, and that was all I wanted to preach about in this text was Bathsheba. Um, And one of the things that I wanted to do was to tell her whole story in the Bible, because I think with victims, no, with people who have experienced sexual assault or abuse, a couple things can happen. First, they can become, uh, feel voiceless or be treated as if their voice does not matter. Um, And second, they can become defined by that moment in their life. And um, neither of those is just and neither of those is true. And so in this story, I kind of wanted to model um, what it would be like to give Bathsheba back her voice. And so one of the ways that I would have ended this sermon is um, after reading this story, I feel a little bit annoyed that David gets his own psalm for this whole experience, that Psalm 51 in tradition becomes um, attached to David and his remorse after, uh, after he abuses Bathsheba. And so what I did is I went and read the Psalms uh, looking for a Psalm for Bathsheba. And um, if you're curious, Psalm 86 reads, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am devoted to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. That's one option for a psalm for Bathsheba. There are others, but that's the one that spoke to me. Also, can we just talk for a second about how David totally did not have to kill Uriah? 
Oh, please go. Go for it. Sure, technically, like, the punishment for adultery was death. But first of all, we don't really know if that ever happened. And secondly, like, they weren't going to kill the king. Like, (laughs) no, that wasn't going to happen. And so the only reason for him to do it was to maintain this facade of honor that everybody knew was gone anyway. He did not have to kill Uriah. Uh, That's such an interesting point, which from a preacher's perspective makes me go to the narratives that we have in our heads that we think we have to uphold, the narratives of being the perfect something or of being the supportive something or of being the strong something um, that we hurt ourselves and hurt other people to uphold. And um, in some ways, this text seems to be talking about the lengths that David will go to uphold that narrative, um, which is, as you said, never true and usually really obvious to people that it's not true. Um, But in our minds, it's so strong. And I think it's also important to add here that Walter Brueggemann says that David can do all of this really powerful stuff, but one thing he can't do is revise moral reality despite Mm. all of his power. Yeah, in a world where, where kings had dictatorial power, absolute authority, this is a text that wants to say, but there's a higher authority still. Mm. And David, is, as king, is still accountable to that authority. And that's how the story ends up playing out. Yeah. You don't want to make too much out of small linguistic details, but this might be a, a place to uh, at least bring up that the, the word send in its various forms is used all over this text. And there's something behind the word send, shalach in Hebrew, that um, emphasizes that power differential. David, all through this text, is sending, sending messengers, sending people to inquire about Bathsheba, uh, sending Uriah around. It's, it's that use of his uh, power as the king to just, uh, by, uh, by royal fiat, declare who goes where and does what. Uh, he's, he's sort of ruling the kingdom like a drone pilot. Like he's just yeah. he's just sending people to do stuff for him, uh, rather than doing things himself, mm-hmm. and that that might be a, a minor point to make, but it's it's certainly something that's uh, that I hear in the Hebrew as I read it in Hebrew, just the repetition of shalach mm-hmm. shalach shalach, mm-hmm. lots mm-hmm. of sending. I think one of the things that the text is doing is lifting up exactly how faithful Uriah the foreigner, the non-Israelite, was to, oh. He very well likely might have been an Israelite. His name is very, very much Yahwistic. But the text says he was a Hittite, right? It does. So this is a little bit complicated here. Like, it sounds really, really, really great to say, like, this foreigner was upholding uh, a moral standard that the king wasn't. Mm -hmm. But um, so the Hittites collapsed as as a society centuries before. Um, but the ruling class in Syria were still called Hittites, and they were probably a Semitic people. Mm. So he might have been somehow related to them. Or it's possible he actually is the, a Hittite, and he changed his name to be more Yahwistic. He is certainly depicted as the, a picture of loyalty to God and to God's people in a way that, that David certainly is not, by contrast. So there's an interesting play there, um, almost between like the person that David used to be uh, is being reflected back at him in this moment of, of deception and sin and abuse of power. Yeah, and I hadn't really thought about it quite in that way, but Uriah in this text does kind of remind me of a younger David, doesn't he? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think that verse 11 is really key in this, in this part of reflecting on the text, especially at the end where uh, Uriah 
swears an oath to the king by the king that he would never do what the king has been doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and in this text where so much is happening between the lines, I really wonder how um, naive that statement was and how much it was actually a statement of protest mm-hmm. in, in the face of the king. Mm. Commentators seem to think it's not, but I really kind of think it is. I think for a preaching point, we could say it. <laughs> no, like, I, I yeah. really do think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it also going, like, it, it does tie back into the younger David thing, too. Yeah, yeah and we were just talking about uh, Uriah's identity and kind of where he comes from. He is mentioned at the end of Second Samuel as one of David's um, inner circle of, of uh like special agents, along with Bathsheba's father, Eliam. So these these aren't just, um, you know, random foot soldiers that are out there, but this is one of David's uh, closest supporters and the daughter of one of David's closest supporters and Bathsheba. Their house is near the palace. So, you know, David knew who these people were and they were important and they were uh, unfailingly loyal to David. So from the perspective of the of the author of this story, this was more than just a moral failure in committing adultery. This was a, a deep, deep betrayal of uh, the, the people who were most loyal to David. Mm-hmm. And there's something, this, this is another sort of preaching angle on this text. There's also this theme of the way that power and privilege blind people to how heinous their actions are. And so when powerful people get involved in all these scandals, we're always so surprised. But power doesn't come sort of neutrally. There's a a pull of gravity towards uh, the corruption of power and toward the abuse of power against those who don't have it. And, And David is not immune to that by any stretch. And so, again, that repetition, uh, so many times that word shalach, sent, David doesn't see much difference between sending a message to somebody with a question and sending somebody's death sentence in their hand Mm -hmm. or sending people to take a woman and bring her to him. Just uh, the, the lines between what is acceptable uses of power and overreaches mm-hmm. uh, become so cloudy when, when power and privilege are in the mix. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's a sermon that I need to hear <laughs> and, and preach, mm-hmm. uh, especially in um, churches that have any men in them or white people <laughs> or straight people. Uh, that's, that's a message that needs to be heard and preached over and over, that those gifts of power or just culturally uh, uh, given privilege are not neutral, that they come with responsibility because uh, you have to push against the pull of gravity towards uh, corruption and abuse. I think that's a great sermon right there. It's one way of going with the text. (laughs) That about wraps us up for this week. A very special thanks to Carolee Folk for helping us out, especially as we think about how to preach texts that deal with sensitive personal issues for our congregations. Yeah, thank you, Carolee. This was really great. Yeah, this was fun. Thanks for having me. Music this week is by Blue Dot Sessions. And thank you for taking the time to listen to our pilot episodes. Please help us figure out the feasibility of this project longer term by going to firstreadingpodcast.com and leaving us feedback on the contact page. That would be super helpful.